Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's test your audio. Instead of counting to 10, why don't you name five of your favorite farmer's market ingredients? You're funny. Uh, so, you know, it's always interesting when they say farmer's ingredients. It really is uh, all ingredients are from a farmer except for fish and meat. So uh, onions, obviously, asparagus, artichokes, apples, and uh, let's finish off with Let's do multicolored carrots. Love it. You sound fantastic. Hey, everyone. I'm Cappy, and you're listening to Beyond the Plate. This is a podcast where we sit down with the world's culinary elite to explore their journey into the food industry and the social impact they have made in their community. If you're new to the pod, welcome. If you've listened before, welcome back. Either way, we're glad you're here. We hope this episode inspires you to cook or possibly do some good today as these chefs inspire us. And we're grateful to our partners who make this podcast a reality. With that. This season is brought to you by our friends at Martin's Famous Potato Rolls. Hi, Ian. Hey, Cappy. Everybody, our executive producer, Ian. Thanks for uh, having me at the top of the episode versus just saying my name at the end. Appreciate it. Why, of course. Ian, Martin's is back for another season with us on Beyond the Plate. You know, I love Martin's and uh, you're always excited when Martin's is here. I am always excited when I hear the word Martin's or potato rolls, quite frankly. So what are we up to with Martin's this season? Uh, What are you, Cappy, excited about? I'm excited about a lot of things. I actually just got back from the Food Network and Cooking Channel South Beach Wine and Food Festival, where Martin's was a sponsor of the big burger bash down there. So that's always fun. We'll be creating some recipes this season using Martin's products, which I always love to do. And we've done in some past seasons. And it will soon be summer fun season, as Martin's likes to call it, which some people may just call grilling season. But either way, summer fun, grilling, we'll be having a good time. No joke. You can't not have Martins when you're growing. A hundred percent agree with you. Here's a little bit more on Martins for everyone who may never have heard me profess my love of Martins. They're an all-American family-owned and operated company founded in 1955 and headquartered in Chambersburg, Pennsylvania. They're the number one potato roll in America, and as I like to say, they can make almost any burger taste better. Even at the Burger Bash, right? Did you have any favorites down there? This is true. I always have favorites. I was really into this one called Ted's Burgers. And of course, Shake Shack is always a favorite personally. How many burgers did you eat? Too many, Ian. Mm. But in addition to Martin's famous potato rolls, they also make sesame seeded Big Marty's rolls, hoagie rolls, 100% whole wheat potato bread. They have a variety of swirl breads like cinnamon raisin, swirl potato bread, maple brown sugar, swirl potato bread. And my mouth is watering. But as you know, dare I say, it is a requirement that all of our partners here on Beyond the Plate have a strong sense of giving back to their community, and Martin's sure checks that box. Their mission encompasses more than just baking the best bread and providing good American jobs. They also believe in giving back to their community and the world around them. Through volunteering time and donating resources, they support hundreds of charitable organizations such as food banks, after-school programs, disaster relief, and others that provide sustenance and comfort to people in need, both close to their baking facilities and abroad. To learn more about Martin's and check out some great recipes, go to potatorolls.com and follow them on social media at potatorolls. Martins. We thank you. We thank you. This episode is brought to you by our friends at One Hope Wine. Hey, Ian. Hi, Cappy. Everybody, our executive producer, Ian. Hi, listeners. Good to be here. Another returning partner this season, Ian. I see that. I love that. 
must be doing something right. Yes, yes. Not only are we doing something right, but this team over at One Hope Wine, they are for sure doing something right. Oh, yeah. Why is that, Cappy? Don't tell me it was about this trip you just took. Dude, I know you were not able to make this trip we took, but some of us just got back from staying at One Hope's estate in Napa Valley, and we spent a couple of days at their winery. And not to rub salt in the wound, but you you missed out. We tasted all of their incredible wines with Mari Wells Coil, their head winemaker. And they also have this new in-house chef named uh, Chef Esteban, who's incredibly talented. So he was pairing a few fun bites with Mari's wine. Sorry, you missed it. Well, I was on vacation with my family, but that sounds epic. So don't go again without me, promise. <laughs> but that's not all we got going on, right? There's a lot I feel like we got going on with One Hope this season. We do. We totally do. This season, One Hope is actually taking over our Beyond the Drink series, which airs every other week from Beyond the Plate. So we'll be doing multiple episodes with their head winemaker, Mari. But we're not doing red wine with steak and white wine with fish. I know... <laughs> We are more creative than that. We are indeed. We're actually going to pair some fun everyday snacks that people have in their pantry. And I'm also going to ask some of our guests what their favorite snacks are. So we're going to challenge Mari to pair some of those snacks with One Hope's wine. So make sure to hit that subscribe button on your podcast player and follow along this season. Love it. Can't wait. Here's some more info about One Hope for everybody. One Hope is a Napa Valley winery built on hope and rooted in purpose. Every bottle of their award-winning wine supports a meaningful cause. This is what that means. It means One Hope's commitment to high-quality wine is as important as their commitment to the causes they support. Through the sale of every bottle, One Hope has donated over $8 million to causes around the world. So clearly, this is one of the main reasons why we love them. Yep. Tell me more, though. Okay, so One Hope also believes that you shouldn't have to sacrifice your wallet to enjoy quality award-winning wines. Case in point, they have this popular Vintner collection, which begins at only $25, which is super affordable, and it gets delivered right to your door. So if you want to learn more about One Hope Wine, the winery, and to apply to become a winery member, go to onehopewine.com, and you can follow them on Instagram at One Hope and on Facebook at One Hope Wine. One Hope, we thank you. One more thing. We have some awesome Beyond the Plate merch, which you can find a link to in your podcast player or at beyondtheplatemerch.com. Head on over and check out our hats, tees, and hoodies. Again, that's beyondtheplatemerch.com. Enjoy this week's episode. Today's guest is a pioneer of California cuisine. He went to cooking school in Paris, moved back to California, which we'll hear more about, and then over to New York in 1983 to open the iconic Jams restaurant. Today, he's the chef owner of Barbudo in Manhattan's West Village, Jams at One Hotel Central Park, and Boffy in Atlanta. He is a recipient of plenty of accolades, including James Beard Awards. You've likely seen him on one of his many TV appearances, Top Chef, Master Chef, on and on. And he's the author of three cookbooks, his latest, The Barbudo Cookbook, of which I was reading, again, at 7 o'clock this morning. This intro is way too short for one of the most highly regarded chefs in the U.S., because if I try to include half of what he's accomplished, it would be three pages long. Please enjoy this episode as we go beyond the plate with a man Esquire magazine once called one of the most influential American, not influential American chefs, one of the most influential Americans. And believe it or not, a former Ferrari salesman, Chef Jonathan Waxman. <laughs> You're funny. <laughs> Thank you so much. Of course. <laughs> Chef, it's our season seven premiere episode. We've got about 70 plus years of knowledge, wisdom, 
stories, lessons to hear and learn from you in about an hour. Let's kick it off. If I click on the philosophy tab on your website, there's three things listed. One, shop at one's local farmer's market. Two, keep it simple. Three, as we cook, the most important thing to do is taste as we go. Tasting is everything. So I learned this like 20 years ago when I was in culinary school, but you were cooking like this 20 years before that. Yet it seems too simple for someone who's accomplished so much in the kitchen. So I'm curious when you are thinking of what are you thinking about when you're creating a new dish? You know, it's funny. Thinking doesn't really have a lot to do with it. It's it really is odd. And I think that chefs of all ilk, of all persuasion, when you're in the kitchen, you're kind of in your own zone. And that zone is really super important to me. I was a musician for a long time before I became a, a chef. And the hardest thing in the world was to get into the zone, to really understand your instrument, to understand people around you, to understand the audience, etc. I found it much easier as a chef to get into the zone. And the zone really is someplace magical. It's a place where everything else disappears and you're in this little bubble just cooking. And it's something that I don't really talk about very much because it sounds a little bit of hocus pocus, sounds a little goofy. But I, I do think it's sort of germane to how a lot of chefs think about. It's where I think comfort comes from. I think it's where your creativity comes from. But more importantly, it's where your satisfaction comes from. I'd rather sit in a kitchen for hours cooking than do anything else. And it could be anywhere. It could be in a basement at Barbudo, where I'm often found over an open fire and go jump in the pool whenever I get too hot or too. Sometimes I'm very lucky and I get to go to this mountaintop beautiful resort in France and cook outside, frustrated with what I'm doing. And then I get to go down to the garden and pull carrots out of the garden. That zone is so important to me. And it's a place where the world stops time stops. And that to me is the most important. I like it. In addition to all of your accomplishments, I want to let you know, I don't know if David mentioned this to you, but you have by far been the most referenced chef in six seasons of this podcast. So there's been countless talented chefs you've mentored that have worked with you. I'm curious to share if you want to share some more of those names or share with us the importance of mentorship. Listen, Andrew, I, I think my career was defined by people that mentored. And if I have to go back in time, it was Ferdinand Chambrette at La Varenne Cooking School in Paris in 1976. Certainly was a mentor to a lot of people. And to me, not specifically, but I felt his influence tremendously. Alice Waters. I don't think that I'd be anywhere without Alice Waters. When I was at Domaine Chandon, Philippe Chanty, who doesn't get enough street cred, who still has Bistro Gentil in, in Yonville and Napa Valley. And Michael McCarty, when I got to be the chef at Michael's restaurant in Santa Monica, Michael was younger than I was, precocious, dynamic, bold, unafraid, and certainly knew who he was. And so though all those people together collectively really influenced me. But from afar, I have to tell you, Julia Child on TV was a huge influence. I can't tell you how much I think about her and her TV appearances. And, you know, I got to know her fairly well when I started my career. But there's one funny note. When I was at La Varenne, I was doing something. I think I was 
dicing shallots or something like that. And Julia Child happened to be visiting Lovren because she was a friend of Ann Willens. And she walked by and she said in her high-pitched tone, really nice work. You know, it just resonated with me. That little 30-second little interchange was important to me, and it stayed with me. I'm curious to learn more about a number of the people you just mentioned, but could we start like early on in your childhood, where you grew up and how you gained an appreciation for food? Well, I'm glad you say that I actually grew up at <laughs> age 71. I still think I'm infantile, but it's funny. You know, I grew up, I was born in Oakland and grew up in Berkeley and El Cerrito, East Bay, the San Francisco Bay Area. And my grandparents had a, a chicken farm up in Sonoma and Sebastopol. And my parents used to drag us up there every every weekend. And I hated going to the farm. I hated the chickens. I hated the fertilizer. I hated working in the garden. I hated the fog in the morning. It was all I could do is get back to Berkeley, to our beautiful house up in the hills overlooking the bay. But in retrospect, I think that has stuck with me, those farm memories. <laughs> this is kind of funny. Sorry, when I was nine years old or eight years old, I had my mother bought me a red hoodie sweatshirt. And uh, I love that sweatshirt. But it caused me lots of problems. And one of the big problems was the ram took an instant dislike to my red sweatshirt. And I was just walking mindlessly through the fields and the ram just came up at a gallop and he knocked me against the barn and knocked the wind no. out of me. And this is a true story. And I was a little kid, and the ram was big, and I was just gasping for breath. And my grandfather, who was actually blind, who ran the farm blind, if you can imagine that, heard me, and he found me by walking his hands along the barn wall until he came and he grabbed me and shooed the ram away. Wow. I want to say funny, but not funny. <laughs> <laughs> so that was that's kind of my farm experience as a kid, you know. And the memories of my grandmother with, you know, this is a woman that grew up in Bed-Stuy and in Brooklyn and moved to California in the late 40s and was like stuck on this chicken farm, not being able to go to the Met or to go see music at Carnegie Hall. And here she is polishing eggs for a living and putting it in the box. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting how food came into your life. Did yeah. mom, wh what were mom and dad up to? Did they cook? My mother was a, an incredibly interesting woman. She graduated Hunter College when she was 19. She was one of those people. I think she was Ruth Bader Ginsburg's age exactly. But it was a time when smart women, especially Jewish women, were not allowed to succeed in a men's, in a man's world. And I think it was a frustration she held till the day she died. But one of the ways she got around that frustration was to be creative. And she was an excellent seamstress. But what she really was was a great cook. She uh, obviously grew up in a sort of a strictly Eastern European Jewish culinary vernacular. But she didn't stop there. And she really was experimental. I remember when I was a kid, my father goes, you know what? Your mother wants us to drive to Fresno to get great please so she can make dolmas and i was like seven years old i said really he says yeah that's what we're doing and so that was my mother in a nutshell that she was experimental she loved cookbooks she's the one that first got julia child's uh, mastering the art of, of french cooking she god i mean this is a crazy story so when i was about 11 or 12 my parents went to mexico a lot and one day my mother shows up back in berkeley with this carved olive wood bowl, these Aztecan sort of utensils. And she goes, I, I, we went to this restaurant in Tijuana called Cesar, and I've got this recipe for making Caesar salad. 
And so she says, you want to help me do it? And I said, sure. And until she got the raw egg yolk out, which I ran out of the room because I was really, that's a whole other story <laughs> about eggs and me. Guy Fieri and I always I laugh about ask, this. because yes. he, he, he and I have the same really? sort of weird aversion. Mine's less, but has been tempered over time, but his has not. And my mother proceeded to make this Caesar salad, which I love the taste of. I couldn't stand the idea of using that raw egg. But that was my mother, that she had the desire to go and seek out this Caesar salad and get the proper utensils and, and recipe to make it. So that really was, that was her. My father, on the other hand, was an intrepid restaurant goer. He loved restaurants. He just, he adored them. He was a traveling salesman, so he went all over, you know, the United States and, as I said, Mexico. His favorite restaurant growing up was Camless in Seattle, and he must have gone up there with a, a client or something. Anyway, this is a, a poignant memory of my dad. One winter night, we had this beautiful uh, living room in this Spanish-style house, and we had this fire, and we would build fires. And in, the, in those days, it used to rain a lot in the East Bay. Not so much anymore, but it was rainy and cold in those days. And my father decided he wanted to do a steak dish he saw in Sunset Magazine. And it was a chuck steak marinated. We're talking 1960, okay? I was nine years old or 10 years old. And he got this marinade, pureed it in the blender with sherry and olive oil and garlic. And he marinated the chuck steak for two or three days built a fire in the fireplace, and then took the uh, oven grill out of the oven, created a brick little platform for this grill, and he grilled that chuck steak over the open coals in our living room. Think about that. You don't think about them until much later in life because when I started my career, those kind of memories flooded back into my brain. And I think those things are incredible. And for my bar mitzvah, my parents didn't have a lot of money, so my mother and I cooked the entire meal for like 60 or 70 people. And I don't remember all the savory stuff, but I remember all the desserts. And my mother had this recipe for Mexican wedding cookies. You know, it's crushed walnuts with dusted powdered sugar. And to this day, that's my favorite cookie. Were you always curious about what your mother was cooking or where your father was dining out when you were young? Yeah, especially my father's love for anything Asian. And the nice thing about growing up in, in Bay Area was that it was pretty ethnically diverse, even at that time. And it was a really strong Chinese community in San Francisco. There's a strong Italian community, obviously, in San Francisco, but Oakland had one as well. You had a Basque community. So there's lots of different ethnicities that was scattered around the Bay Area. But I remember going to uh, this restaurant. It was called, uh, I think, Sun Hung Young. And my father would walk in. It was We were a party of five, right? And the maitre d' or the owner or whatever looked at my father and started to drag him to a table on the ground floor. And my father said, ah, uh-uh. pulls a $20 bill out of his wallet. Hands it to the guy and said, we want to go to the top floor. Now, I didn't understand what he meant by that, but that's where local Chinese families ate. And there was a lazy Susan in the middle of this huge table. And I just remember that food coming out. I, I, I To this day, I, I wish I had the skill set to be able to do that kind of food. It really was remarkable. So that that's kind of my parents' culinary upbringing, as it were. Did you start to help your mom in the kitchen? You know, I always sort of helped my mother, but the truth, this is this is the real truth. My parents were latchkey parents, and they just said, okay, we're going to dinner tonight. You guys fend for yourself. And that happened. I was the oldest of, of three. 
we're exactly two years apart. So at age seven, they just leave me in charge of my little buddies. It was the biggest mistake of the, of, of the world. But uh, so the first meal that I made, this is true, absolutely true. I got the joy of cooking out and I opened it up to the cookie section, of course. And I made shortbread cookies. That was my first dish I made for the joy of cooking. Were your siblings into food at all? Oh, yeah. And now even more so. It's interesting whether I've had an influence on them or they're just tangential with my career and their careers. Now everything revolves around food and family and get togethers. My brothers still live within a mile of where we grew up. And they get together weekly with all their families. And I try to come out as often as I can. But it's it's nice because all we do is cook and prep food. There was, some people do desserts. Some people do this or that. Everybody kind of either gathers around the grill, gathers around the oven, plays games with the kids. But it's all about food. But the most important part of that is shopping. And so when we go shopping, it's always Monterey Market in Albany, Monterey Fish in Albany. And then... There's various butchers that we go to. There's lots of little farmer's markets in Berkeley now. There's obviously the big ones, but there's this little small one in Kensington that I love going to. I just love it because it's just tiny and pure and you, know, you have to wait in line, but who cares? It's magical. Okay. So skipping ahead a little bit, high school, college, after college, you were selling Ferraris in Berkeley after college? Yeah, it was kind of a weird thing, you know, because I was a trombone player. I thought that would be the end all of my life. Around 1972, 73, the need or desire to have trombone players in the musical world diminished dramatically with disco. And uh, I found myself in Hawaii stuck. I had a band that I was playing with broke up, and all my friends who were surfers, they go, well, you have two choices. You could uh, sell drugs or work in a restaurant. So I got a job working in a restaurant called The Rusty Harpoon in Kanapali Beach. And I started off as a, as a grunt. I'd wash dishes. I cleaned bathrooms. I defrosted mahi-mahi because there was no fish in those days. I cut New York steaks. I uh, baked potatoes. And I worked my way up from that to a bartender. And from there, because I was... I showed up to work most of the time, and because most people didn't show up to work, the kind Scottish owner made me the manager. And I just fell in love with the whole idea of a restaurant. It was a very odd restaurant because it was grill your own steaks, but it was right on the beach in Connaught Beach. It couldn't have been more idyllic in terms of locations. And I just loved every second of it. It was great. I was there for about a year, and I came back to the mainland, back to Berkeley, and my father looks at me and goes, don't you think, Jonathan, it's time to get a real job? And I said, what are you talking about? He goes, so he handed me a matchbook with a telephone number and a name written on it. And he goes, call this guy. So I call this guy. His name is Jerry Gamez. And I said, Jerry, my name is Jonathan Waxman. And he goes, I know who you are. Your dad called me. I said, okay, just tell me, Jerry, is it an insurance job? He goes, no, it's not. Why don't you come by and see me? And Jerry was the lead salesman for this Ferrari dealership in Berkeley, California. So at age 24, I was told I had hair down to my down to here, beard down to here, and I was told I had to go buy a pair of Gucci loafers, which cost 100 bucks in those days. And uh, I guess that was part of the uniform, and I became a Ferrari salesman. But uh, Steve Griswold, who owned the Ferrari dealership, also had the most amazing restoration shop in America at that time. Steve had all these connections throughout the world, and people would drop off cars of, I mean, amazing cars, like D-type Jaguars from Le Mans in 1954, 55, 1950 Ferraris, 51 Ferrari, 
Barquettas, the first Lamborghinis, early vintage Alfa Romeos, and his shop would repair them. So there's lots of times where there's no customers at all. So I would hang out in this restoration shop and watch cars being torn apart, fixed up, put back together. It was remarkable. Anyway, during my lunch break, I used to go to Chez Panisse and have lunch. And it was so cheap and it was ridiculous. My best friend, who was a saxophone player, and I would go there and we'd have lunch. I'd go back to work. And one day, Steve Griswold's wife said to me, you know, you talk about food more than you talk about cars. Have you ever thought about taking a cooking class? I said, uh, no. She goes, I have this friend named Mary Risley who has the Tante Marie Cooking School in San Francisco, and she'd be a great place to start. So I took a six-week course, course with Mary Risley at the Tante Marie Cooking School, and she was a really... A strong advocate of the Cordon Bleu style of methodology of, of cooking, teaching cooking. And so I took the class and I loved it. And one day she calls me up. She goes, you want to have lunch? And I said, sure. Why? So I go, I go out to lunch with Mary. She goes, hey, Jonathan, I had to tell you something. You really have a penchant for cooking. Have you ever thought about doing it as a career? And I said, uh, no. And she goes, I took the, the initiative and I signed you up for a cooking school in Paris called Loverin. Without telling your parents or anything? Nothing, not telling me. And she says, I tried to get you into the Cordon Bleu in London, but they're full. So there you go. If you can get 6,000 bucks for a year course, that's what it costs in those days, to go to Loverin. And so I went to my parents and I had paid my way through uh, college by playing music and scholarships. So first time I sort of really asked them for a lot of money. And my parents said they were flush at that time. I said, sure. And my father sort of quips. He goes, so when you get back, are you going to become the chef for Sizzler Restaurant? And that was my father's sense of humor. But in November of 1976, I was off to Paris. Interesting. Did you love it? I didn't speak more than one word of French. I could say bonjour, not very well. I arrived on my birthday, November 15th. And I remember going to this little restaurant in the left bank and having confit de canard and chocolate mousse and a half bottle of cour and striking up a, a, a conversation with people next to me who spoke English. And I got there a little early because the session didn't start for a couple of weeks. And I, so I took a language course at Alliance Francaise on Rue de Spy. And I met this guy who is an American who is a photographer. And he said, where are you living? And I said, well, I'm living in this little hotel around the corner from Alliance Francaise. He goes, well, I'm staying with this other photographer and he's got five bedrooms. Why don't you just rent a room from him? So I ended up staying with this photographer, famous photographer, Dick Valerian. And so I stepped in, you know what, by in this amazing apartment. And I went to cooking school. And yes, I fell in love with cooking school. Absolutely. What was the plan after school in Paris? Well, the, it was interesting. The uh, people that ran the school, there was one guy who was sort of in charge of you know, administrative stuff and really wonderful guy. And he goes, have you thought about staying in France and, and working? And I said, well, is that possible? I thought you needed a working permit. He goes, I think that's a possibility. So he called up the head of Relay and Chateau Group and they said, yeah, we'll take them on. It'll obviously be a lesser property where they're desperate for someone. And uh, so they gave me two choices. One was in Brittany and one was in the Vosges. And for some reason, I ended up in the Vosges, which was a very interesting place to be. I basically worked from eight in the morning till midnight every night with an hour break in the afternoon, no days off. I Maybe I got a one day off a week or something. And it was the chef, myself, and a dishwasher and a one-star Michelin restaurant. So needless to say, I knew nothing except what I learned in cooking school. The chef was a patient, wonderful person in the world. The dishwasher was obviously dealing drugs or something. And they hired another chef to come in as to 
actually make sure that I knew what I was doing. And he turned out to be a total drunken disaster. So I ended up having to do everything with the chef. And one of the funniest things was, Andrew, <laughs> this is one of the craziest memories. We used to do tweet of I don't know if you know how you make that, but you, you need a live trout and you have to take a live trout and you have to kill it, gut it, and poach it almost immediately in a courbillon uh, flavored with vinegar uh, on a simmer on the stove. And the trout turns blue. Strangely enough. Anyway, but you had to get the trout. And remember, this is the middle of service, right? I had to be cooking on the stew, and the chef go, ah, merde, tout table. And then he tell me, go run outside. And these trout were so smart, they could hear me coming. So they'd run the other side of the pond, and I'd have to go. It took me like, <laughs> the first time I had to do it, it was like a nightmare trying to get one of those suckers out. But you know what? I learned how to cook. But I learned more about restaurants and kitchens than I did really about cooking. And I learned about a little more about the French culture. And, and on top of that, I got a working permit. Now, as soon as I got a working permit, a cartridge of I, my father called me up and said, your mother is very ill and you have to come home and take care of her. At that point, he divorced her. And so I told the people I was working for and they were, they were actually were sad that I was leaving. I didn't know why. And so I came back and I called up a friend of mine who worked for uh, Food and Wine magazine, a friend of the families. And he goes, there's this great new restaurant opening up called Domaine Chandon in Napa Valley. Why don't you go apply there? And I got a job working at Domaine Chandon. Interesting. Okay, so you come back, you work for Domaine Chandon, and then do you go to Chez Panisse from Domaine Chandon? No, I went, I, I took a job, I got offered a head chef job at the Monterey Bistro in Monterey, California, which I had no business taking, no, I didn't have any of the attributes necessary to be a chef, but I was cocky and young and silly, and so I took the job. The, the food was just so different from what I had learned in Paris. When I mentioned I wanted to make a Berle Blanc sauce, the goes, guy goes, no, you don't, we don't do that. That's too new. It's, you can imagine that, this is, we're talking about 1977. At the same time, before I had left to go to Monterey, I'd put my application in at Chez Panisse. So while I was at Monterey, my mother called me up and she goes, this woman named Alice Waters has been calling the house for you. And she wants to know if you'd be interested in working at Chez Panisse. And that's how. Love it. Okay, let's cruise through some more of these stops along the way. Chez Panisse, after Chez Panisse. Well, after Chippenies, I wanted to go work in Lutest in New York. That was like my goal. And I had no no clue about how to do it, but I, it was on my brain. But I decided to go to L.A. just because I'd heard a lot of things that were going on in L.A. And when I was in L.A., I, I ran into this guy named Ken Frank, who had just left this restaurant, I kid you not, called La Guillotine. And he said, I'm going to be the chef of this restaurant called Michael's in Santa Monica. Why don't you go talk to the owner? He might have a position for you. So I uh, drove over and met Michael and restaurant was so yeah we're opening up in two weeks and no way that was going to happen but michael and i talked for hours and we bonded and he said listen wax why don't you come work for me so i packed up my bags and moved to la lived with michael at his house for three months while they finished the restaurant and i became the sous chef to ken and about a month or two later ken says jonathan surreptitiously i'm opening my own restaurant called la toque on Sunset, would you mind if we switch and you become the chef? I said, sure, I don't care. So I became the chef at Michael's. And I was there from for five years, from 79 to 83. There's so much incredible people and places you are mentioning that I hope everybody listening like takes takes a couple minutes out of their to look up the significance and importance of some of the, again, people and places you're mentioning. I mean, you you were young at the time. Arguably, you guys open 1979, I believe, I, I saw. 1979, yeah. I mean, you, you became, this restaurant kind of, I don't know, for lack of a better term, put you on the map as like one of the 
true pioneers of California cuisine, no? It was a lot of serendipity. Mike was 25 at the time? So I was the old guy. I was um, 28. Ken was, I think, 22 or 23. He was so precocious. You know what's interesting? You know, I, I had an amazing group of people work for me. I had line cooks like uh, Roy Yamaguchi was a line cook for me. Think about that. You know, it was kind of like the young AAA ball club that got everybody came to the majors in, in one fell swoop. But I think the most important thing was Michael's ability to see a bigger a world picture about where food was going. And he really... He was a pioneer in many ways. He had the first point of sale system that was a complete nightmare to use, but he was adamant to modernize the American restaurant. He and I both had worked in France. We both had that sensibility about seasonality. I got more of my seasonality from Alice than anybody else, but in France, things are very seasonal. But more importantly with that was sort of taking the Escoffier methodology and trying to put it forward into the 20th century. And that meant lightening up sauces, not cooking things things as long as they used to do, not pre-cooking things, cooking things more what we call a la minute. But also it was more of the diversity. So I found out that there were spring lambs in Sonoma County when I was at Chez Panisse. And so I started ordering spring lambs from up there. There were these wonderful squabs from a carpinteria that that were just like the like as good as anything I can get in France. A fisherman started bringing me live spring spot prawns from Santa Barbara. Another guy uh, used to fly fish from New York, I kid you not, from Citarella Fish. And Joe would bring fish out every week to me because we, we couldn't get scallops or soft-shell crabs or any of the Eastern seaboard-style uh, fish. And the fish fisheries at that time in Southern California were pretty minimal. So, you know, it was hit or miss in trying to get stuff. It was ingredient-based. Things were all about what people could bring us. We had a guy that would bring us ducks. We had a guy that brought us rabbits. We had Ari Covera from Mexico, if you can believe that. So the demand for things that we had, we knew about from our European study and European sort of going to restaurants in Europe and New York, we started, we wanted those things for, for LA, but we also wanted things on a California basis. In other words, we wanted to not saute things. We wanted to grill them. That was a huge sort of leap of faith that Michael and I both embraced because we felt that California cuisine really was about the backyard, about my father cooking in the fireplace. It went full circle for me. And also it was not serving asparagus year-round, not serving raspberries year-round. That sort of crept into the equation more than I liked. It was also discerning between potatoes, which potatoes actually tasted better. I know it sounds a little silly, but yeah, that was important. Which olive oils tasted better? What butters tasted better? And there weren't any bakeries at that time. There were two or three bakeries in LA. We would start breaking our own bread because we did we couldn't get what we really needed. Michael's really was, it was a real sort of experimental station for me. It was a place where I could just, Michael just let me do whatever I wanted, as long as it met a certain standard. And I made some mistakes along the way, I have to tell you. I did cook some really bad things, but I created a vocabulary for myself that I was very comfortable with. It's interesting, like definition, if you will, of California cuisine, because I feel like too many people these days are like, what's California cuisine? It's using seasonal food. I use seasonal food, but it's, I'm making that up, but it's not that. I mean, it's more than that. Yeah, and you also have to remember that the whole, all the diversity of San Francisco Bay Area and LA and other places, you know, my mother going to get the grape leaves from Fresno, all the incredible Chinese restaurants, San Francisco, all the sushi bars that were popping up in LA at the time, all the different Thai families were starting to come to forefront. 
And listen, I love Mexican food more than anything. I'd be very happy cooking in that genre my entire, the rest of my life. And then, of course, you know, the first time I had white truffles when I was at Michael's, like, that rocked my world. I mean, there's nothing better than a white truffle shaved over buttered noodles. I'm sorry, there isn't. Now, what does that have to do with California? Absolutely zero, but it was our ability to just embrace everything. Then you head to New York in early 80s. Do you go back to California to open Table 29? I did, yeah, because I had jams in London, jams in New York, and a restaurant called Bud's. And I had a French restaurant called Ulo in New York, where Bobby Flay said that was his favorite place to work. It was crazy. Yeah, I opened a Table 29 for a short, hot minute in Napa Valley. I sold it. It gave me enough money to actually buy the apartment I'm in right now, 26 years later. I know, it's crazy. And then I freelanced for a while because I wanted to raise a family, and it gave me the opportunity of not having to be chained to one place. And then I opened up uh, Washington Park and right after 9-11. And then that morphed into Barbudo in 2004. So the legend goes, while you were opening Table 29, this young, out-of-work cook walks in that you helped to find what would later become one of the most renowned restaurants in the world. <laughs> Take us back to that day and how did that conversation go with you and this man? So, you know, Thomas Keller and I obviously had a, a good friendship from New York. He had a place called Raquel, which sadly did not last. And he ended up in somehow, he ended up in LA working at this restaurant in a hotel called Checkers. And, and then he, when I opened Table 29, up out of the blue, he calls me up and said, Jonathan, I, I had this dream. I said, what, Thomas, how can I help you? Get your dream because I want to do a, a relay and chateau style restaurant in Napa Valley or Sonoma. I said, cool. So do you know any properties that might be available? And I said, yeah, I actually do. I know a couple places. So he flew up, drove to table 29 and we hopped in my car and I drove him around the valley, gave him an orientation. I showed him a couple of, of examples of what I thought would be good. And I said, okay, I'm saving the best for last. And I drove into Yachtville. Uh, the French Laundry was owned by John and Sally Schmidt. And I knew that it was for sale. Now, this is, I think, 91 or 92. I can't remember. 91. They wanted a million and a half dollars for this restaurant. Now, included the property, included the business. But that was a lot of money. And I said, Thomas, I, I can't think of a better place for you. And he says, Jonathan, I'm doing it. And the determined look on his face was pretty amazing. And six months later, he calls me up. He says, you know what? I did the deal. I found the money. I'm opening up the French Laundry. And I have to tell you, I think that's the connectivity of our community that's so important. That's why I love my business. I think there's so many stories like this. There's so much hands across the water when people are not doing well people reaching out you know marcus samus and i talk about this a lot i think we hope our legacy is that we were pretty good people we made a lot of mistakes but along the way we did try our best to be good people we want the industry to grow and i think back you know Andrew, i was in paris in 1976 so it's getting on it's 45 years ago that uh, to me a short 45 year span the world of cooking in america has gotten so much better and it's light years from where it was. There were great restaurants in America in 1976. Don't get me wrong. I'm not poo-pooing any of those places. A lot of them don't exist anymore, sadly, because the world has changed. But those foundational restaurants were sort of the springboard for people like me who are just didn't know what to do with their careers and stumbled into the food business. And our community is, has strengthened all of us. And I just love it. I just, I think it's great. Is Barbudo your dream restaurant? You know, it's funny you say that. I, I would say that Barbudo is my 
favorite restaurant. It's my happy place. I, I love being there. No, it's not my dream restaurant. My dream restaurant, to be truthful, is a restaurant in Hawaii on the beach that serves, has its own garden, is its own little set of fishermen, and is only open when I want it to be open. That's my dream restaurant. Okay, so you mentioned like you mentioned restaurants and like almost longevity and being the foundation of this community. There's not a lot of restaurants that have had such consistency, simplicity, deliciousness with dishes for as long as you've had. When people ask me for recommendations in San Francisco, for example. Zuni Cafe is like, it's always at the top of my list. It's usually the, one of the first places I suggest because you have to get the chicken, you have to get the Caesar, you have to get the gnocchi is what always comes out of my mouth. But when people ask me about New York City, similarly, it's Barbudo, quite frankly, because I have to make sure they get a salad, a Brussels salad or the, the chicken or gnocchi, or crispy potatoes, you know, <laughs> a number of things. When you're in San Francisco, where do you eat? You know, I, I'm sort of loath to say where I actually eat all the time, but I would agree with Zuni. I would certainly say Catonia. I love uh, Gary Danko. For fancy food, there's nothing better than walking into Gary Danko. It's The word restaurant means to restore one's spirit. Walking into Danko's really restores my spirit. And because his staff is so perfect. Food is perfect. The place is wacky. It's just really special. And there's an, I have to tell you, there's a lot of restaurants like that in San Francisco of differing cuisines and styles. But San Francisco is a very special place for me. But I will say that Chez Panisse is still, still my first love. I, can't, I have to say it for, you know, for the record. It, New York is such an amazing, diverse place. And how do you choose amongst all those restaurants? It's so difficult to say that I have favorites is really, I wouldn't be happy saying places are my favorite, I, I, but I am happy to be in New York City because of all the all the choices. My kids tease me all the time. My daughter did take me out to dinner the night before last to Le Cuckoo, and I'm just happy that French food is back in New York with Le Cuckoo. You know, I wish there were more places of that uh, style. It's hard, and you have to really reach into your culinary sort of dictionary to sort of bring some of those dishes back. But I think that it's important. I think Escoffier is important. I think all that is really is magical. And I, I encourage anybody to think about that because it's just like you know, great Italian restaurants or great, you know, Cambodian restaurants. You really have to, you have to do it well. And it, it's always a, a difficult thing. And it's a, it is a labor of love. So you're 71 years old in this industry. You've been through the BS. You still probably go through the, the BS, the challenges, the hurdles on any given day could bring. What motivates you every day? You know, that's, that's the hardest question to answer, I think. There were times in my career where I didn't have motivation, I'll be truthful, or I felt that I had made some errors and mistakes. I made a lot of those. But what really gets me going about Barbudo. Number one, we, we had to move locations and that's always somewhat of the kiss of death to do that. But I think I've circumnavigated that in the best way possible. But it's my staff. I listen to them laugh when they're in the restaurant before service, during service, after service. That does it for me. I've got, I, when I, I was walking, I walked in yesterday and I walked in later because I had to do something in the morning. And the first thing I hear is laughter. So these people are having a great time working at Barbudo I'm doing okay. I, I think I accomplished my task. And I think that bodes well for this whole COVID era that we're going through, that there might be a silver lining yeah. here. Maybe. Yeah. Let's hope so. Did you or do you 
Did you pay attention to reviews like when you were a chef or do you still pay attention to them? In the old days, I was, my life somewhat hinged on reviews. You know, they're important because I think critics are a, a big part of our business. Though I think what's happened now is that social media really has managed to be its own critical platform. And it's, I think, a little more democratic in terms of the outreach of criticism and opinion. And listen, we live in democracy. We can't be afraid of someone not agreeing with you. I think the, the best thing about democracy is that we all have to agree to disagree. And if you can't do that and, and you're too thin-skinned, don't be in the restaurant business. Don't do it because you're just going to suffer. You know, I have suffered. I, I, I will admit I've suffered. I suffered for my friends when they got terrible reviews. But you know what? A review is something like in school when you got that crappy uh, a grade in a class and you had to deal with it. You had to move forward. That's part of life. Listen, you know, things don't always work out. From day to day in the restaurant, food is better one day than it is the next day. I learned that very poignantly when I was at Shea Pennies. It wasn't always perfect because the menu changed so much at Shea Pennies. So it was always difficult to make it perfect. And that sort of stuck with me for a long time. How do you really keep the intensity up to do food well? It's hard. It's very hard. So at this stage in your career, why Adele's in Nashville? Why Buffy, Atlanta? Yeah, those are good questions. I think that there's part of me that likes adventure, that likes expansion. It's certainly a little bit of my DNA that I'm ever restless. Yeah. I mean, you've had to have had a hundred opportunities or offers to open Barbudos in every single city and country. No? Yeah. I mean, I think Barbudo is a very difficult thing to duplicate. Moving it two blocks was a five-year journey. But I think that Nashville came about because Caleb Followell from the King's Leon used to eat at Barbudo every day. And one day he said, Jonathan, how come there's no Barbudo in Nashville? And I said, Caleb, maybe we could figure that one out. And so it was, you know, you get seduced, I guess, by the opportunity. Would I be happy with just Barbudo? Absolutely. But do, am I happy that I have other restaurants? Absolutely. Is it more work? 100%. The nice thing, I'll tell you, Andrew, what I really enjoy is mentoring chefs, even if they don't want me to mentor them. <laughs> <laughs> They'd be smart to take you up on it. Well, a lot of people are stubborn and they, they're happy with their own skill set. And I, I get that. People need to have that ego that is confident that they're performing at their opportune level. But I, I think it goes back to the music thing. It's good to have someone critique your work. It's like when I wrote my Barbudo cookbook and I had a lot of people look at it and say, this doesn't make sense. This is silly. And it's important to have different eyes on creativity. If you think you own that, that genre, you're silly because you have to put it out to the public regardless. Public has to consume it and not everybody's going to like what you do. And you have to be able to be ready to face that reality. That's a hard part of life. Being in the public eye is difficult. Yeah, for sure. We had Marcus on the podcast. You mentioned Marcus Samuelson a little bit earlier in this conversation. He said he talked to you at the beginning of the pandemic and you had told him that he needs to pick up the phone and call two chefs a day because mentally he was not going to cope and that he needed to call them up, stay in contact with them, figure out how they're solving things, how they're doing it. And that mentally, it's good to check in on people. So he said he called sous chefs and cooks that maybe worked from 10 years ago. Do you remember the first two people that you called? You know, I actually do not. But I there was people that I hadn't talked to for years. And there was a couple of people I knew that I needed to reach out to. I knew that they were in pain. I knew that they were having a rough time. And I think 
I hope my voice and my call was, was somewhat comforting, hopefully. But also, I needed the comforting. Uh, let's face it, I was, I was being selfish. I needed the dialogue. I needed, I, mean, I listened, the whole, whole world was lost at that point. Everybody. There was not one person that was immune from that, that emotion. And I think that if I've learned anything in my business, it's camaraderie is the most important tool that I have and we have at our disposal to, to keep our community together. There were some really difficult decisions that had to be made. There wasn't a playbook. So we were making things up as we went along. And when you do that, you need to have different set of optics. You need to have your friend's optics. And I think we all needed that. But more importantly, I just wanted to hear their voice. You know, hearing someone else's struggles made your struggles just a little bit less onerous, I think. And the best thing about chefs and best thing about cooks and, and people in the restaurant world, we love to laugh. We love to tell jokes. We love to tease each other. The Wolfgang Puck and I just love teasing each other and playing tricks on each other. We've done some really silly things over the years. I remember once we were at, a, Rolf and I used to work consult for American Airlines and we did a conference in DC and we had this long dinner to like one o'clock in the morning and Wolf says, ah, Jonathan, we're going to go for a run first thing in the morning. I just dismissed that as Wolf just being silly. Six o'clock in the morning, Wolf calls me up. Let's go for a run. And we ran and I remember running down the mall to the Lincoln Memorial and back to the hotel. And it was actually beautiful, but we were both in fairly rough shape. And years later, he told me, Jonathan, I just did it to bust you, you know what? Speaking of Wolfgang Puck, he talked about you as it relates to Meals on Wheels events, what he started doing the American Wine and Food in, in LA. And you may know this, but all 100% of our guests on Beyond the Plate here give back in different ways. It's one of the main reasons why we do the podcast, to share with listeners what chefs and restaurateurs are doing outside of the kitchen. We know chefs for something they may put on their plate, but... As you know, Chef, there's plenty more you all do to give back to the community. We worked together briefly on the one and only Rachel Ray charity event that we held. It was at Barbuda, which was incredible. Long before that, in the early 80s, as I mentioned, Wolfgang started one of the first probably festivals that benefited a charity of its kind. And he shared a little bit about that event. And he mentioned when you went to New York, you started the Big Meals on Wheels event at Rockefeller Center. Talk a little bit about the importance of where does giving back come from for you? Because you're very active in a number of organizations and I could rattle some off, but I'll let you do your thing. Yeah, I, listen, I think the most important thing for me is giving back. I've gotten so much from the world and specific people, obviously. There's a lot of people that are less fortunate than I. And if I don't feel that I'm giving back, then I think that I'm not doing my part for the world. And chefs have a certain amount of notoriety. So why not use that notoriety to raise some money? When I was invited to do the Wolfgang Puck event at the old Spago, Gail Green was there. And Gail and I were pals. And even though she was a critic, but she and I had gotten to be good friends. And I said, Gail, we should do this in New York. What a fabulous event this would be in New York. And we talked to Larry Forgione and we talked to Florence Fabricant and the four of us got together. We thought we would do a benefit to honor the birthday of James Beard, who Larry was very close to. So we planned to do a, a benefit based around James Beard's birthday and City Meals on Wheels, which Gail and Florence were, it was their favorite charity. Gail really had a huge influence in that. Anyway, James unfortunately died and we sort of abandoned the idea. And then Florence and Gail said to Larry and myself, why don't we just make it a memorial to James and, and honor him in that way? And we said, well, God, that's perfectly logical. And that's how the Meals on, City Meals on Wheels event Rockefeller started. And uh, Restaurant Associates, 
was generous enough to donate everything. Gail was like the strongest Valkyrie saying that no one is going to pay for anything. We're going to get everything donated. And she was a force of nature. She got everybody to donate. And it was all the money. And we raised a lot of money. In those days, it was an incredible amount of money. We had an anonymous uh, donor who doubled, who matched the amount that we raised. And that just made me feel great. I got to have all my friends cooking with me. We got to raise money for an amazing cause. City Meals is about the federal government funds program for people that are housebound one hot meal a day, Monday through Friday. But Saturday and Sunday, the program is shut down. And City Meals provides those meals on the weekends. And what, what an extraordinary thing for someone who's housebound and in, in the New York area to have someone, and it's their social interaction. Somebody comes to the door and said, here's your, here's your hot meal today. They chat for 30 seconds. And that connectivity, I think, does what restaurants do is restore your spirit. It brings you back to life. The food obviously nurtures you, but it's that social connectivity that was special. And to be part of that was, has always been an amazing thing for me. Yeah. That's incredible. Do you ever instill any sense of giving back to staff or does it kind of naturally happen because you do so much philanthropically? Yeah, I listen, I think I could always do more on, on every level. Let's face it. Part of my future sort of vision is to try to do things better. And it, that's with the environment. It's with my mentorship. It's with how I run my businesses, how I treat my employees, better understanding of what they need. Back in the days, things were much more dictatorial, the straight line from the owner of the restaurant to the employees. I wanted to be more communitarian, more egalitarian, and embrace people the way that happened in Chez Panisse with Alice. I mean, Alice really felt that she was creating a community. It wasn't a restaurant so much as it was a, a grand extended family of like-minded souls that wanted to work together. Yeah, and I said this for every one of our seasons in terms of giving back. I always say to anybody listening, give what you can. Use your voice, use your dollars, use your time. One dollar means something. 30 minutes of your time once a month means something. A social media post means something. So chefs do that in some of them, all three of those ways. So thank you. Let's do a quick speed round and then we'll close it out. Sure. Number one, what did you have for dinner last night? I had a leftover stir fry of uh Peaky toe crab, broccolini, a leftover leek and potato gratin, shallots with rosso radecchio. Yum. Name a smell in the kitchen you love. Bread baking. Name a smell in the kitchen you hate. Garbage. What pisses you off in the kitchen? You know, there's a lot of things that piss me off, but honestly, it's lack of attention. Yeah. I think I know the answer to this, but what makes you happy in the kitchen? Just cooking. Last question. What three dishes make the perfect Chinese dinner? If I don't have scallion pancakes, I'm diminished. I love any kind of dumpling, but since I'm airing more on the vegetarian side, something made with wild mushrooms. Honestly, Peking duck is the greatest dish in the world. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Closing it out here. What advice would you give or do you give to young cooks coming up in the restaurant food service industry? My, I think my biggest advice is stay young, stay childlike. Don't be too quick to become mature. Don't be too quick to become an old soul. Stay young. Love it. Chef, thank you. I appreciate your time. You, as we mentioned, pioneer in 
in cuisine and restaurants and restaurant culture to probably hundreds or thousands of other chefs and cooks. And I just hope that there's a young culinary student listening to this or a mature adult and they realize the importance of what you've done for this industry. Uh, thank you so much. You're very kind. It's an honor to chat with you and I'll probably see you soon in Miami. I hope so. All right. Have a good day. You too. Thanks a lot. Thanks again to Chef Jonathan Waxman. Find more on him at jonathanwaxman.com. To learn more about City Meals on Wheels, go to citymeals.org. We'll share a link to those websites in the episode notes and at beyondtheplatepodcast.com. Find me and keep up to date with this podcast across all social media platforms at On Cappy's Plate or go to beyondtheplatepodcast.com. Beyond the Plate is also on social at BT Play Podcast. This episode was produced by myself along with Ian Cohen, Joe Yetton, and Sean Petrosian. Our digital media producer is Sarah McClellan Me. Our music has been composed by Goldford. Find him at iGoldford. As always, a special shout out to my wife, Katie. If you have a moment, we'd love and appreciate it if you could rate or review and subscribe to this podcast on your listening site of choice. Don't forget to join us next Wednesday for an episode of Beyond the Drink, our companion podcast of Beyond the Plate, brought to you by our friends at One Hope Wine. Thank you for listening to Beyond the Plate. I'm Cappy, and remember, there are never too many cooks in the kitchen.